So in 1 Kings 19, we have this wonderful, amazing scene. It's not taught as often in Sunday school with children as the story that comes before where Elijah is praying to God and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice and the whole altar, all the stones, and all the water that filled the trench around in answer to his prayer, and then rain comes. But this story is no less marvelous and wonderful. It's just harder to understand. I think that's why it's often passed over in Sunday school curriculum type situations. It's hard to understand. It's short, and there's a lot going on. So, let's remind ourselves where we are. Elijah fled from Israel because Jezebel had promised that she was going to kill him. After he flees, an angel appears to him and feeds him, refreshes him while he's resting under a tree and then says, all right, wake up, eat again. You're not strong enough yet for the journey. And then he has a 40-day and 40-night fast and journey. If it's hard to go 40 days without food, it's even harder to go 40 days traveling, walking by foot without food. And yet the Lord sustains him and brings him to a mountain. Do any of you kids know what mountain it was? Zeal, yeah. What's that? Mount Horeb, that's right. This is not the first time in the Old Testament that we run into Mount Horeb. The mountain of God is what it's called in verse 8. When he arrives there, it says, went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, Let's go back for a moment and see where we see Horeb before. Okay? Let me just read you. Now Moses was pasturing the flock. This is Exodus 3.1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. It's also called the mountain of God there. Isn't that interesting? And does anybody know, any of you kids remember what happens while Moses is being a shepherd? It's a short little part of his life. I got to I got to choose. All right, wait. That's right. He sees the burning bush and God speaks to him. 
God speaks to him on Mount Horeb. And we read this passage, and God speaks to Elijah on Mount Horeb too, doesn't he? So Mount Horeb is the mountain of God. And the Lord sometimes shows himself, reveals himself in a particular way, in a spec that he is sending to his people. And that's what we get here on Mount Horeb. So that's where we are. Elijah was in a cave staying on Mount Horeb. And God asks him this question, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Some people have interpreted this to mean that Elijah was not supposed to be there. There are rhetorical questions and uh, they would say this was kind of a rhetorical question like, come on Elijah, you're not supposed to have been running away. What are you doing here? But I don't think that's what is going on because remember God is the one who fed him and strengthened him for the journey. So clearly God was providing for the ability to get all the way to Mount Horeb. So why does God end up asking him, what are you doing here? It's not because Elijah is not supposed to be there. He practically commanded this journey. The reason he asks the question is because he is drawing out from Elijah Elijah's thoughts, Elijah's feelings, and really Elijah's judgment. It's kind of like asking, okay, so let's recap what happened. How did we end up here? How did we end up here? Why are you here? What are you doing here? There have been times where Elijah has been out in the middle of nowhere apart from all of the people. And there were reasons for it. They were seeking to kill him because he had prayed that there wouldn't be rain and there was no rain. So he hides and God provides for him. We covered that in previous weeks. Now here he is, he's out in the wilderness again, he's living in a cave this time. And God asks, what are you doing here? And what do we see? We see Elijah's grief. We see Elijah's brokenness in his answer, and it's repeated twice. God asks him this question two times, and he answers the same way both times. Either Elijah's answer was good, or Elijah is very stubborn. Because I don't think, having answered that way the first time, that then, having lived through wind that was strong enough to break rocks apart, Not to mention earthquake, which is strong enough to break rocks apart, and fire, 
which is always scary when you're trapped in a cave. I don't think that I would reply the same way if God asked me the question as though, now try again, Elijah. I want you to think harder and be better with your answer. Elijah is, has either given a good answer or Elijah is incredibly, incredibly stubborn to give the same answer a second time. What do we know of Elijah? Well, he is a strong man, but nobody encounters the power of God like that. Even the hard-hearted Israelites, when the fire came down from heaven, said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. You don't encounter the power of God poured out in these miraculous signs without being affected, right? Let alone what comes after, because God wasn't in those signs. But what comes after the wind, I mean after the earthquake and the fire, Oh yeah, the wind, the earthquake, and the fire. The sound of a gentle blowing and the Lord speaking to him again. What are you doing here, Elijah? And once again, he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword and I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. This is Elijah's judgment of how they got here. How we arrived at this point in the story And he's set in it. You have time to think when you're walking for 40 days without food, don't you? He's pretty sure of his answer. And it's a good answer, is what I would say. So although it may be tempting for you to see, and maybe you've even heard sermons that try to... uh, get into Elijah's psyche and have him feel, what, self-justified and, uh, and sorry for himself in this answer. I think that is more a reflection of how we feel than is what we see from Elijah. This is certainly an example of Elijah mourning in great sorrow over the lack of effect from his work that he was hoping for, that he would have desired, that any prophet of God would desire, that any Christian 
having proclaimed the gospel message to a loved one, would desire to see that person repent and believe and put their faith in Christ Jesus and to rejoice in the covenant of the Lord. But Elijah didn't get to see that. And so, yes, he is mourning. But Elijah is not whining to God. Elijah is simply stating what has happened. He has been zealous. For what? Not for himself. He says, I have been zealous, very zealous, for the Lord, the God of hosts. What was Elijah doing? He was giving himself to the work of proclaiming Christ. And you say, well, Christ wasn't... Yeah, yeah. I put that little pause in, right? Because I want you to see, are you zealous for proclaiming? Are you zealous for the glory of the Lord like Elijah was? Or do you simply feel sorry for yourself when you don't get to see what you want to see? Elijah is mourning because God's people have rejected God, the Lord of hosts, his salvation, his covenant. He's mourning for the lack of glory given to God's name. To see what happens over the course of three years of God driving people to their knees to where they are forced to listen. And then the sign of fire coming from heaven. The people saying, the Lord is God. There's no denying it. Executing the prophets of Baal. And then for the queen to be trying to kill him. But what does he say? He doesn't say, and now Jezebel is trying to kill me. What does he say? They seek my life to take it away. The sons of Israel is they. The sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They have torn down your altars. They have killed your prophets. Your people, God. Your people have turned against you. That's why I'm here. Because your people won't hear your word. They've rejected it. They've rejected it so much so that they're now trying to kill me. They've already killed all the rest of the prophets. And now they're trying to kill me as well. Now 
Let's stop here for a moment. And let's think about effectiveness. How many of you have ever seen somebody, or perhaps you yourself have done some street preaching? Have you ever seen or done it yourself? Raise your hand. Not, a, not on video, let's say in person. Okay, we've seen some of that. Does it feel like it could be effective? It doesn't feel like it could be effective, does it? It's embarrassing, right? What, what do they think they're going to accomplish? Nobody's listening. Now, times have changed. It can't be effective anymore because times have changed. Have times changed? Yes, times have changed. Have people changed? No, people have not changed. Effectiveness. Perhaps, perhaps evangelism that is done through friendship will be more effective, right? Because it will be more attractive. People will enjoy it more. Perhaps if we simply give people enough education so that they understand what's really going on in their life, in God's Word, what God has done for them. If they only knew what God had done for them, if they only knew that God loved them, then surely they would love God. They just need to be told. They just need to be shown in the right way so that they can truly understand because they must not have heard effectively when you shouted it from the rooftop, they must not have heard, they must not truly understand, because if they truly understood, if they had truly been educated, they would understand and, and they would respond with great love for God. How could they not? Now, in one sense, I understand why we feel this way, because you, if you have given your life into God's hands and know his love, his comfort, the joy of serving him, it's a natural thing to think, this is wonderful. Nobody in their right mind, nobody who understood would reject this. Right? But here are the people of Israel. are They have seen God's power displayed in fire coming down from heaven and burning up rocks, oxen, water, consuming it in their presence in direct response to a simple prayer, God, show them who you are. And they have been unable to deny it such that they even say, the Lord is God. There is no denying it. Nevertheless, they want nothing to do with him. And so was Elijah's work effective. 
You see, was it effective? Well, not in the sense that we would want to judge all evangelism methods, right? See whether it worked or not. Did it work? Yikes. You okay, girl? Landed on her head. Now I've embarrassed her probably. Okay, we'll keep going. Effectiveness. That's what we want. We want, to, we want effective ways. We want to know what the ways that will work are. And then we'll use the ways that work and we'll say the ways that don't work are stupid. Is Elijah stupid? Is God stupid for the way he uses Elijah? If the people simply knew, if we, could, if we could truly educate them properly, would it work? The answer is no. God must change their hearts. And so even demonstrations of power are not effective in the sense that we want. But here's the thing. God is accomplishing his goal through it. It is effective. So don't look down on it for being ineffective. And also don't lose faith because they all seem to be ineffective. But rather understand that God is accomplishing His goal through His means. And what was His goal? By revealing Himself so clearly once again to His people who had a history. They knew. They had the stories, they understood that God had brought them to this land, had given it to them, had delivered them out of Egypt, had delivered the land out of the hands of the Amorites and Amalekites and all the rest of the people who were living in Canaan, right? All of these things, they knew, they knew that Yahweh was their God. But it had been a long time. See, if God would just show himself more clearly, and then he shows himself more clearly, very clearly, what is God accomplishing? He's accomplishing their greater guilt. That's what he's accomplishing. And so as we come to the end of our passage, what we see is Elijah has made a judgment God, your name is not honored by your people. As a matter of fact, they drag it through the mud by the way that they live, by claiming your name and then living in rejection of you. What are you doing here, Elijah? I have been zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, what does he mean? I have proclaimed your word. I have made you known. I have demonstrated your power. I have shown the people of Israel who you are. I have been zealous, very zealous. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant 
torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And so God demonstrates his power once again in the wind, in the earthquake, in the fire. But it's not until the gentle blowing that he is present. There is much that we could say about these things, but to keep it short, let's state the most obvious, which is God needed to tone it down a little bit before Elijah could go out of the cave, didn't he? Elijah can't go out when there's a whirlwind breaking the rocks apart. And Elijah can't go out when there's fire consuming the mountain. And Elijah probably can't even stand up during the earthquake. Which, by the way, again, cave, earthquake, not a place you want to be. But God's protecting him. God is very merciful. Yes, he demonstrates his power, but he also allows Elijah to come out and to approach him. God is demonstrated in consuming the sacrifice. He's demonstrated himself in the most apparent way possible to man. And he's certainly able to continue doing so. And that's what we see through these signs. There is no lack of additional power. God could continue to demonstrate to the people ever greater signs. Right? Now we're going to shake the world. Now we're going to send fire. Now we're going to consume it all in a whirlwind. But instead, God in His mercy begins to send just judgment. How can His mercy be to send judgment? And what do, why does... Why do we say judgment when we're talking about the, the gentle blowing? The gentle blowing is probably best understood as yet another place where the gospel is pre-imaged in the Old Testament. God's word goes forth in the gentle blowing. God speaks. But what does he speak? He speaks and says to Elijah, okay, now you're going to anoint three people. And every one of those three people, I will use to judge my people. 
It's a very hard thing to read. Who is he going to anoint? He is going to anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Aram is not God's people, right? So he's going to anoint a new king over some other kingdom. Then he is going to anoint Jehu to be king over Israel. So another king. And then he is going to anoint Elisha to be the next prophet in Elijah's place. And then in verse 17, it shall come about the one who escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. God reveals himself through his word and his judgment. His word is, judgment shall come. God agrees with Elijah. The people have rejected him. So now it's time for judgment. Hazael, Jehu, Elisha will all be putting people to death, bringing God's judgment. Who are they going to be putting to death? Israelites. God's chosen people. There is a there is a uh, children's devotional storybook that I've read that contrasts Elijah and Elisha and describes Elijah as being a uh, stern, hard man and Elisha being a new, newer, gentler version. You read this verse and you realize you just can't go there, right? It doesn't work. I understand the, I understand the uh, temptation and I think partly it is just a misunderstanding of what is going on in this passage that God reveals himself in that gentle blowing. But that gentle blowing brings with it such a hard, hard message that Elisha will condemn many. Nevertheless, God's word, though it is clear it is an intense judgment, does not end with that. If God had simply wanted to send judgment, it could have been in the form of fire, wind, and earthquake to wipe out the people of the land. Right? But that's not what God decides to do. He reveals himself in the gentle blowing, and though the sword of all three of those men will be the judgment that comes, how does he end? Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God will save his people. 
as the judgment is poured out, He will save His people. The ultimate judgment is that He will cast the goats into hell. But it won't be wipe them all out. It will be divide them and I will save my people. I will save those who do not bow the knee to Baal. I will save those that have not kissed him. God will save his church. Even in the wicked generation that rejects him while claiming to seek a sign. Right? Show us. Fire already came from heaven. Show us by bringing somebody back, even if I brought somebody back. They would not listen. God will save his church. What are we in today? Which phase are we in? We don't know. It could be that we are entering into the phase of God pouring out his judgment. It could be that we are in the phase of the warning, the calling. Are we in Elijah's phase or are we in Elisha's phase today? We don't know. We don't know what's coming for our nation. But what we do know is that God will save his people. And you want to be among his people so that you will be saved. You don't want to experience the fire, the whirlwind, the earthquake. You don't want to be sitting in the cave calling for the mountains to fall on you when his wrath comes so that you can hopefully bring it to an end more quickly. No, you want to be among those who are seated, covered by his wings, brought up over the waves, carried, renewed through 40 days and 40 nights or 40 years that he sustains protects and brings his church through his judgment to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may your people increase. May we not be people who say the Lord is God and then return to worshiping the things of this world. Father, may we take courage along with Elijah knowing that you have accomplished your work. Though sometimes it is hard for us to see. And Father, may the number of the faithful not grow small. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on this earth? Father, may it be that he finds many faithful.
May we be among that number, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.